There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. One big part of Egypt's economic malaise is just how much the military is involved with business. They make everything from cement to pasta to a copycat of the most popular dairy brand. We ask why so many generals are general managers. And in just seven decades... Ascending to the summit of Mount Everest has gone from something never done by anyone to something done by hundreds of people each year. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine has thinned out crowds at the top of the world. First up, though. War in Ukraine and spiking energy prices had already driven many countries to reconsider their dependence on Russian oil and gas, even before gas supplies were cut off to Poland and Bulgaria. For some countries, that's meant investigating homegrown sources of energy, including the fossil fuel-heavy options they'd been moving away from. Yet even as the global picture keeps shifting in the face of a pandemic and now full-fledged war, countries' commitments to climate targets remain including the landmark Paris Agreement. Lots of governments and companies haven't been doing enough to meet those targets. So increasingly, climate activists are finding new ways to pressure them by taking them to court. So we're seeing a large number of court cases that cite climate change as a central issue popping up in courts all around the world. Katrine Bragg is our environment editor. These are being brought against governments for not acting enough on climate change. They're being brought sometimes against individuals. They're also being brought against companies. In a sense, lawyers are sort of testing a a huge variety of arguments. But you've got court cases against companies for misinformation, for damages, and also for not doing enough to curb their emissions. So what do the cases against governments look like? We've got a big variety. One type of court case popping up are these cases where young people are suing their governments for basically not doing enough to protect their future rights and not doing enough to protect the environment that they will inherit. And you've got court cases which ultimately are seeking greater action from governments on climate change. So one classic example of this was in the Netherlands where the Urgenda Foundation sued the Dutch government on the basis that its emissions targets were too weak to keep the country safe. This was a highly publicized case, and it was particularly interesting because in December 2019, the Dutch Supreme Court found in the plaintiff's favor. So previously, the government had a target of lowering emissions by 17% relative to 1990 levels by 2020. And the Supreme Court said that they needed to up that to 25%. The revised target was, in fact, met, but only just. 
Perhaps the most interesting thing about this court case is that it bred copycat cases. So we've seen similar cases being brought in Germany, in France, in Ireland. And in Germany, for instance, it also resulted in a revision of the government targets. And and what about suits aimed at companies? This type of case gets a lot of attention, in part because the parallels are being drawn between suing corporates for emissions today and suing big tobacco several decades ago. The arguments are many and diverse. People are suing fossil fuel companies for failing to properly inform the public of the risks of climate change at a time when they were aware of them. Companies are being sued for damages. So there's some classic cases in the US where coastal cities are suing fossil fuel companies on the grounds that the emissions that they are associated with are and will continue to cause rising sea levels and damage the urban infrastructure, and it's going to cost the cities a lot of money. And then there's a new breed of court case where companies are being sued for failing on their fiduciary duty. And the landmark case here was a case that was brought by an NGO called Client Earth in 2018 against a Polish power company called Enea. And Enea was at the time boasting that it was going to build Poland's last coal-fired power station. Now, the staff at Client Earth purchased 10 shares in the company for, I think, some total of about 20 euros, a little bit more than $20. And as a result of that, they bought themselves the right to sue the directors of the company claiming that the directors were failing on their fiduciary duty to shareholders because this coal-fired power station that they were investing a ton of money in was ultimately going to end up being a stranded asset because of the movement towards renewable energy. So they were saying that basically this coal-fired power station was never going to live out its lifespan and was going to end up resulting in sunk costs. The court case took about a year and ultimately A judge in Poznan ruled in favor of client Earth. The construction of the coal-fired power station was abandoned, and something like $250 million that were invested in the project were written off. The activists essentially became activist investors. They are basically activist lawyers. They're staffed by very smart people who are thinking of all kinds of different ways, not always resulting in court cases, but all kinds of different ways of influencing companies and of bringing about a faster transition towards a greener economy. So you say that the the number of these kinds of lawsuits is is increasing. Are they filled with successes like this? This sounds like a, a tremendous success for the people who spent 20 euros on the investment. According to One analysis that was done last year by some scholars at the Grantham Institute here in London, as of 2021, 58% of the cases outside America that had been concluded had outcomes that were favorable to the parties that sought more action on climate change, and only 32% of the results had been unfavorable. But it's worth remembering that that stat is cases outside America The vast majority of these cases are, in fact, being brought in America. And there are plenty of cases that are not successful. The whole idea of getting action on climate change through the courts is 
not completely new, but still interesting novel and has many different avenues that people are exploring. And of course, when you do that in any experimental field, you're going to have successes and and failures. Well, and there's the notion of legal precedent, right? Each one builds more on the last. Yeah, uh, legal precedent is really interesting here because these cases are being brought all over the place. So the Urgenda case does not set a legal precedent for a case being brought in Germany, but it might inspire lawyers across several borders to try a similar approach. That's definitely happening. And also judges and lawyers all around the world are saying that they're watching courts in other countries in order to understand how it's unfolded elsewhere and possibly to, you know, take inspiration from them. So precedent is very difficult in this scenario because we're looking at a global picture. And I suppose another question is whether or not these kinds of issues should be worked out in the courts, even if in some cases they are being worked out in the courts. Yeah, so that argument is made frequently, in particular by corporate defendants, fossil fuel companies that are being sued for various reasons. There's a strong, I think, argument that regulating emissions is a matter for governments and not for judges. And in fact, many judges, in particular in the US, have heard cases and come to that conclusion themselves. However, the courts are there to decide how the laws are meant to be interpreted. And increasingly, particularly after the Paris Agreement was made in 2015, more and more countries are coming up with legal climate frameworks. We've got the Climate Change Act here in the UK. And so emissions and emissions targets are being written into the law. So it's hard to argue that it's not the judge's job to decide how those laws should be put into practice, or certainly to hear cases when people argue that those laws are not being properly put into practice. It's not that the courts are ultimately going to be the only forum for deciding on climate change policy, not at all. But they've definitely got a part to play, and you can't deny that it's a fascinating part to play. Katrine, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, announced yesterday that his government will soon unveil a plan to help the country navigate a rocky global economic environment. He promised support for major industries and to strengthen the role of the private sector. The government has long been saying it's open for business, but look closer. Quite a lot of the business is already being done by, or has been taken over by, the country's military. President Sisi is making some of the right noises in public about the need for private sector growth in Egypt, but what he says and what his government does are two different things. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. 
The Egyptian army continues to expand its ever-growing economic empire. It's shaking down firms that refuse to sell a share to the military. This scares off foreign investors, and this punishes local CEOs for success. So what do you mean by shaking down? One of the most glaring examples over the past couple of years has been the case of Johanna, which is one of the best-known companies in Egypt. It's the largest manufacturer of dairy and juice products. It's a company that is one of the most valuable on the Cairo Stock Exchange. Uh, unfortunately, that has made it an attractive target for the military, which demanded to be given a controlling stake in the company. When its founder, Safwan Thabit, refused, he was put in jail. His son, Saif, was also thrown in jail. They were accused of terrorism and support for the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a favorite accusation for the Egyptian state. Uh, really what happened here was it was a shakedown. And when they refused to hand over control of their company, they were locked up and they have not yet been brought to trial. So why is it that the government is so pushy about acquiring these companies anyway? The Egyptian army has long had an economic empire. This has been going on for decades. The military makes pasta, it makes bottled water, it runs a network of petrol stations. It's always had a hand in what should be private business. But its economic role has grown significantly over the past nine years since the military staged a coup in 2013. The military has branched into new sectors. It has taken a monopoly position in some other parts of the economy. And it's able to do so with relatively little competition, not only because it's backed by the coercive apparatus of the state, but military companies have tax breaks and customs exemptions that don't apply to the private sector. They have access to conscript labor, so their cost of production uh, is always going to be much lower than for private firms. And they've also created now almost a closed ecosystem where, for example, the military has now become a major producer of cement, iron, steel, construction materials. It's also a major contractor. So the army has created this economic empire that is in many ways almost unassailable for private firms. Does that speak to a policy essentially of just letting the army take over every single bit of the private sector that's left? I mean, where does it stop? No one knows where it stops. And that's one of the things that makes this so vexing for private business in Egypt. Decades ago, the sectors that the military was involved in were sectors where essentially the military was making things for its own use. It had some spare capacity and it sold those things to civilians. What's changed over the past few years is the military has branched into all of these other sectors where not only does it not need to be in these sectors, but Egypt is already producing lots of these things to begin with. There is a almost a disdain of the private sector within the military. There's a sense that private businesses are corrupt, that they're incompetent, and that whatever it is they do, the military can do it better. It's become so diversified that it's not clear why it's branching into these sectors, and it makes private investors, of course, very nervous. And we spoke not so long ago about the state of Egypt's economy. How does this army takeover of more and more parts of it add to that pressure? It has a very negative effect, as you would expect. If you look at the top line figures in Egypt, the economy has been growing reasonably well since 2016 when it signed a loan agreement with the IMF. But if you sort of look under the hood, the private sector has not been growing. The manufacturing base has not been growing. Exports are sluggish. The current account deficit is growing. And all of this is having very real consequences in terms of microeconomics for ordinary Egyptians. The poverty rate has climbed since President Sisi took power. 
People have been squeezed by a number of new taxes and fees that have been imposed. And the currency has been devalued several times, including last month when it was devalued by another 14%. So there's a very difficult economic climate to begin with. And the military stepping in and, and squeezing private actors out and uh, shaking down other private firms is scaring off foreign investors. And it's making it difficult to get any kind of private sector growth going in Egypt. And how is Egypt dealing with the economic problems that it's got besides letting this practice continue? At the moment, it's really focused on the fiscal side of things. It's gone back to the IMF to negotiate another loan agreement prompted by the war in Ukraine, which caused a number of jittery investors to pull money out of Egypt, the sort of hot money that has kept the treasury financed over the past few years. Billions of dollars have left the country over the past few months. So there's a need for hard currency. There are also, of course, concerns about what the war will mean for food prices and energy prices in Egypt as everywhere else around the world. The government has also, over the past few years, imposed a number of austerity measures. So the focus has really been on the budget, the deficit, the fiscal side of it, but there's been no sign so far that President Sisi wants to rein in the army. So that being the case, how do you see this progressing? I think absent some very clear policy change at the top, the military is going to keep doing what it's been doing. I mean, as one private businessman once half-jokingly put it to me in Egypt, it's very hard to compete with firms that also have armored divisions. There's no way that uh, private business can compete in this environment. And for the military, it's really become a state within a state. If you are, you know, a young Egyptian army officer coming up through the ranks, you're going to benefit from these economic holdings throughout your career. Maybe you get married in a military-owned club. Maybe you take your family on holiday to a military-owned hotel somewhere. Once you retire from the army, you probably will find a job on the board of directors of one of these army-owned companies. So it's very beneficial for people in the military to have these economic holdings. Unfortunately, it's not beneficial for the rest of the country. I've spoken with plenty of would-be foreign investors who've said, I'd like to do business in Egypt. There's 102 million people there. There's a huge market. It's a prime location for exports. But I'm deeply concerned uh, about the prospect of the military either crowding out my firm or, or trying to expropriate it. So as long as the Egyptian army keeps doing that and keeps scaring off foreign investors, unfortunately, I think Egypt's struggles with the private sector and with exports are going to continue. Craig, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. We came around the last bump, and then we found the ridge dropping away. So we uh, looked up, and there was the summit just 30, 40 feet above us. So we cut up onto the summit and stepped on it. In 1953... Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became the first people to reach the summit of Mount Everest. I think my first reaction was definitely one of relief. Relief that we had found the summit, one thing, and uh, relief that we were there. Since then, summiting Everest has become increasingly popular. 800 people did it in each of the two years before the pandemic. Yes, we made it! That's good news for the Sherpas who guide people up the mountains and for Nepal's economy more broadly. Though, of course, with crowds come rubbish and danger. This year, however, things are looking a little quieter at the top of the world. On April 9th, Nepal's tourism department announced it had issued 204 climbing permits, half of last year's record figure of 408. 
Abhishek Ashakumar writes for The Economist. And these reduced numbers are really a surprising knock-on effect of the war in Ukraine. And it's causing some financial hardships for Nepal and the people who depend on the mountaineering industry. Abhishek, it's not immediately clear to me why the war in Ukraine would impact the number of people coming to Everest. Why is that? Well, nearly 30% of mountaineers who hope to climb Everest someday come from Ukraine, Russia and neighboring European countries such as Poland. And it's quite a big part of the overall uh, climbing community. And most of them have canceled their plans on account of the unrest and the war in Europe. And so what does this mean for Nepal and the Nepalese who need this tourism? Well, with every person that doesn't show up, it's a pretty big financial loss for the small landlocked country because these wealthy climbers who wish to go up on the Everest summit, they spend somewhere around 60000 to to $100,000 each. And they hire local people and buy local supplies. And they often bring friends who hang around at base camp. They do not aspire to climb Mount Everest, but they trek and they spend some $1,500 a head. And most years, some 50,000 tourists flock to the base camp without climbing Everest itself. And this year, that figure will be far fewer in number. And just to play devil's advocate, could this also not be a good thing? I mean, we've reported before on the intelligence about the overwhelming numbers of people trying to climb Everest. Yes, in fact, from Everest's standpoint, it's a great thing for the mountain because it's been carrying more people than it can really handle over the years. The climbing window where the weather is just right to summit, it's really quite small. And there is some sense that Everest really has simply been hitting its limits. In fact, in 2019, a record 354 climbers queued to reach the summit on a single day. And you might remember that famous photo of this long snaking line of mountaineers in brightly colored jackets. That's at over 8,000 meters And that can really create a lot of safety issues because of the altitude. And those climbers also bring in other issues. Uh, For instance, in 2019, Everest got so filthy that authorities had to clear 11 tons of rubbish from its slopes that year. But that said, the economics of it are important too, not least to the Sherpa guides. So with no one to guide, what are the Sherpas doing now? How are they faring? Well, this has been a particularly difficult time for Sherpas, especially the last couple of years. For instance, during COVID in 2020, the whole season was cancelled. And the fact that this is happening so soon afterwards, after things started to rebound, it's causing a lot of difficulties for many people. But after the setbacks of the past few years, mountain workers have had to find a few other ways to survive. They do odd jobs. Many are also subsistence farmers. They grow potatoes, carrots, radishes. And the whole situation, along with the pandemic, really exposed just how much Nepal depends on mountaineering and the tourism dollars it brings to support the economy. And it's home to eight of the world's 14 highest peaks. And it heavily relies on people coming to the country because of those impressive peaks. So with climbers staying home, it's not just the Sherpas that are being harmed. It's Nepal's economy more broadly. Yes. And it's had a tremendous impact because tourism accounts for 8% of Nepal's GDP. It brings in more than a million jobs and it's the second biggest source of foreign exchange earnings after remittances. And so even with numbers hitting their limits in years past in terms of what the mountain can practically handle, the government is really reluctant to do anything that could stem the flow of important revenue. For example, just last month, the Ukrainian embassy in Delhi 
sent a diplomatic note to the Nepalese authorities requesting for a ban on the handful of Russian climbers coming this year. Nepal politely declined. All right, Abhishek, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, John, for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.